When your first child is born, something changes inside of you. You know you'd do anything to protect and provide for that child. And you feel this overwhelming sense to grow and to guide this child. But at the same time, you feel a sense that you're ill-prepared. But we aren't meant to be alone in the task of bringing the truth of the gospel to bear on our families. Instead, it takes a larger family, a church family, of people in and through whom the Holy Spirit is working to shape us and our children and bring in those who are still far off. We are intentional with the gospel and our need, we're not shrinking back from the real, correct gospel, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that the world is broken, but there is hope. VBS is a great example. We've got every single age group, so we are intentionally bringing people together. And it's all about God. It's all about being on your face with God and understanding that in His sovereign plan, He brought this family here, and we get to minister to this family together. I get the privilege of working with an awesome team that is passionate about loving kids with the power of the gospel. That's a grace, that's a glorious thing here that it's a team aspect, not only between parents and leadership, but even among the leadership, it's a team aspect. There's a continuity, a fluid, that makes up the entirety of Church of the Apostles. The world system at large is aimed at undermining two institutions, the family and the church. But why? Because the enemy knows that God has ordained these institutions and works mightily through them. When the two cooperate, when they work synergistically, it results not only in families that are rooted in Christ, but it overflows to a world that is longing to belong. As I continue to have an opportunity to minister to the fifth and sixth grade families as they're entering into the student ministry, I also now have an opportunity to minister to families who have students that are getting ready to go off to college. It's important for college students to have that community because there is a sense of, oh, we're so connected, but the truth is very little connection. One of the things that they need is a place where they say, listen, even though everybody else may be against me, this group of people, they love me, they pray for me, and they're here for me. Real growth happens in the hearts of people when they are in community with one another. If we're in isolation and we are getting our sermons online or we're listening to podcasts, those things are great and helpful, but they're supplementary to the gathering of God's people. The two primary things on church are the gathering together and the proclamation of God's Word. And they're building up in two different areas of who we are as people. Families come to church, and churches have families, but if those two aren't properly connecting, we miss a greater impact. The purpose of family ministry, from cradle to college and beyond, is to, by God's grace, act as a catalyst to get those two to connect and do much greater things together than they could ever do apart. We aren't walking this road alone. We're never fighting a battle alone, and the Bible doesn't call us to. And God's calling parents today towards the same thing. It is our role as father, our roles as mothers, to teach our children who God is, to show them Christ, 
to put them in places also, though, to learn rightly about who He is. And so we, we don't at all look at church as a place that is meant to replace what parents are doing. And so the church and the family are coming together for the good of these kids, for the good of the parents, and for the good of the church, and for the good of the gospel in this city and beyond. We've been a little bit busy this summer, putting some things together for this fall. And as we look towards uh, just this next week and the, and the first Wednesday of the new Wednesday night programming, as we look towards the first uh, Sunday where we're back in full swing, uh, we're prayerful because we know what's ahead of us. We know what we're here to do. We're here to prepare a generation. We're here to prepare people for what comes next. The day before the D-Day attack, uh, high command had sort of filled the heads of the troops with the idea that though the task that lay ahead of them was going to be difficult, that the air bombardments of Normandy Beach and the like had reduced the number of defending Germans and had demoralized the remaining troops. But one man, one rather colorful one-star general named Norman Cota, didn't agree with a rosy assessment that higher command had. On June 5th, he spoke to his own men and he said these words. The little discrepancies that we tried to correct in the amphibious training center are going to be magnified and are going to give way to incidents that you might at first see as chaotic. The air and naval bombardment and the artillery support are reassuring, but you're going to find confusion. The landing craft aren't going in on schedule and people are going to be landed in the wrong place. Some won't be landed at all. The enemy will, to some degree, prevent our gaining lodgments. But we must improvise, carry on, and not lose our heads. I'm struck by Norman Coda's honest assessment of the situation. It was a sobering picture, but it was not filled with the impossible. It was filled with hope. To effectively prepare someone for what lies ahead, we must be honest about the challenges that they will encounter. But simultaneously, we must instill hope. When I think of how Norman Coda prepared his troops, I think of the words of Paul to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. It's more than likely that Paul wrote this in a Roman prison awaiting trial, and he would ultimately lose his life. What was coming next for Timothy and, and the church was the persecution brought by Nero in which Peter and Paul would both lose their lives. In light of what we know would come next, hear Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. That's page number 1855 in your pew Bible. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. 
In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know from infancy you have known the Holy Scripture, or because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I'm here to tell you that we have not experienced that much here in the West. It's a reality in the East. And eventually, on some level, we are going to experience persecution. How do I know that? Jesus said it to his disciples. Paul said it to Timothy. I've seen the reality of it in the lives of other people, in my own life. You cannot be cool enough to dismantle the kind of opposition that comes against you. You cannot repackage the gospel enough for it to not be offensive. It is fundamentally offensive to say you cannot, you are unable, in standing there before God without even saying a word, you stand before him condemned. You need Jesus Christ And he's the only way. To say those words to people is fundamentally offensive. And at base, if you truly believe in the authentic gospel, the real gospel Connie's talking about up there, you're going to be offensive no matter what you do, no matter how kind you are, no matter how sweet you are a person. It's going to be offensive because the spirit in us is diametrically opposed to he who is in the world. But the thing is that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And Paul is telling Timothy, as he gives him this charge, to continue in the faith. Now, this can apply to any believer. I'm here to frame it in family ministry as we consider what, we, how, what it means to continue in the faith what it means for the next generation. If we know full well what is coming next for anyone who claims to know Christ, how do we prepare those coming after us for what comes next? Because 20 years ago when I entered seminary, the world looked different than it does now. And 20 years from now, I guarantee you, apart from a revival of God, which is wholly and completely possible, it's going to look dramatically different than it does this day. So how do we prepare someone for that culture that's coming next? Not only their faith to equip them, but to be salt and light in the world in which they live. I believe that In the context of this letter to Timothy, we see here three main ways that we can be prepared or we can prepare those for what comes next in life and culture. I think we must have hearts transformed by the Spirit within us. 
Our lives must be conformed to the word set above us, and our faith must be formed by those placed over and ahead of us. The first two are foundational. The second one is instrumental. So I want to spend a lot of time on the last point, but we cannot overlook the first two because they're foundational. And if we give those up, what are we really defending? So first, we must have a heart transformed by the Spirit within us. Paul says to Timothy in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and you have become convinced of. Now, learn is knowledge-based. It's truth-based. It is propositional. It is, it is Bible doctrine. And Paul spent a lot of time teaching Timothy Bible doctrine, but it's not mere intellectual assent. He doesn't just say continue in what you learned. He says continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. And that word convinced is faith. That's a spirit-given, spirit-born proposition. And when Connie says in the video, we teach the real gospel, this is exactly what she means. The real gospel is at heart about the heart. It's a transformation of dead-hearted rebels into those who submit to a Lord who will change their lives, who receive a new heart that is alive unto Christ. Around the 18th century, a new sort of gospel began to appear. And that gospel was this. Jesus is the pinnacle of what it means to be human. And all of us, in our own right, have the potential to be like that great moral man, Jesus. And therefore, what the gospel is, is perfecting ourselves day after day, pulling ourselves by, up by our own bootstraps, following key principles so that we will continue to be more moral. That is not the gospel. That's an alternate gospel. What the gospel does is says that Jesus has made us right before God, and he puts a spirit in us, and that spirit transforms us so that we're more like Christ. We don't have that power in and of ourselves. It's an alternate gospel that becomes about self-improvement. And C.S. Lewis wrote about that. He exposed that sort of thinking. He wrote, For mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people even here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons not simply to produce better men of the old sort, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at his own game. The difference between being spirit-born and spirit-transformed is that we become winged horses. We will improve, but only because Christ is in us, causing us to change and to grow. And the point is this. If the Holy Spirit isn't part of the equation regarding life transformation, then we're pursuing self-help and not Holy Spirit gospel transformation. And Paul says in verse 13, imposters go from bad to worse. 
That's the way of the imposter. That's not sincere faith. And he says that Timothy has a sincere faith. In 2 Timothy 1.5, he remarks that Timothy's faith is sincere. It's an unhypocritical faith. Paul knew what was just ahead for Timothy. And while knowledge was important, he knew that knowledge empowered by faith given by the Holy Spirit could cost Timothy to overcome the opposition that was coming against him because it's resourced by the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us and for our children. Only a sincere faith can count it all joy in the face of suffering. Only a sincere faith can overcome those trials that come against us. One of my favorite moments in Scripture is when Jesus teaches the hard things. He does that all the time. And so here are the the disciples, and he's teaching that that if one wants to be a follower of him, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the, the whole forest clears out. Like wherever he's preaching, all of those people that have gathered near him pick up their stuff and start walking out. And I can just imagine Peter sitting there going, well, this is not accomplishing the goal. And at that moment, Jesus turns to Peter and, and the disciples and say, will you leave me too? And I love Peter's answer because you can just read between the lines and see the raw honesty of his answer. He says, where would we go? We have left everything for you practically. We've left everything. So we put all of our, our, we put all our cards in here. Put everything in here. But he also said this, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where will we go? So you see the conflict in him. It's like, I, look, I'm with them. I really do want to walk. This is, this is strange. I don't understand. I don't get it. But something in me, something in me tells me to stay. I've seen a lot of young people be on the verge of walking away from it all. And no matter what you say, they seem to have an answer for it. But I've also seen the spirit of the living God stop them in their tracks and make it impossible for them to leave. And you feel the frustration in them. I want to go. I want to leave. I want to walk away from all this. This doesn't make any sense to me, but I can't walk away. I can't leave. And I don't know why. And you get to say, because that's the Holy Spirit in you. He's drawing you back in. He's pulling you back in. Mom, Dad, pray for that. When you run out of words to say, the Holy Spirit never does. And he keeps preaching, and he keeps preaching, and he keeps preaching to those who he's drawing to himself. An imposter faith is crushed by the mildest opposition A heart transformed by faith counts it all joy when having faith is inconvenient, 
And when holding faith is seen, is seen as incongruent in a world that thinks much differently. So we must have hearts that are transformed by the power of the Spirit within us, but we also must have our lives be conformed to the Word set above us. It's not just the Spirit, it's the Word. And they both work to transform us. And Paul reminds Timothy in verse 16 that it is the God-breathed Word that is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And in verse 17, he tells Timothy, that's how a man is equipped for every good work. The word provisions us. And I think most of you would agree, but we're losing ground even on this point in the church. This began in the 18th century as well as the new theology. A new version of Scripture, a new view of Scripture emerged that said this. Not that this is the Word of God. Played some some fancy footwork with the terminology. This contains the Word of God. What's wrong with that? right? That's true, right? It contains the Word of God. What they meant is this. If my spirit agrees with it, it's Word of God. Where my feelings or my spirit or the enlightenment of the age disagree with this, it is not Word of God. Thomas Jefferson took this to a new level. I don't know how you feel about Thomas Jefferson, but you're probably not going to like me after this illustration. Thomas Jefferson had his own version of the Bible. And when he read the Bible, he read, he read that Bible with a razor blade. And he cut out sections of Scripture because he believed that Jesus was one of the greatest moral teachers that ever lived. Do you hear what I just said? Jesus was one of the greatest moral teachers who ever lived. But that's where it ended. Thomas Jefferson's gospel, Thomas Jefferson's Bible ended before the resurrection. He cut out things from Old Testament. He cut out things from the prophets. He cut out so many different things that didn't agree with how he felt Jesus should be as a moral teacher. And unless you doubt that, let me read you a quote from Thomas Jefferson. We must reduce our volume to simple evangelists, select even from them the very words only of Jesus. There will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. Do you get what he said? What he agreed with, what he believed was true, pure moral teaching was great, but the rest of it was a dunghill. We cannot approach the Bible with razors in our hands. And though many of you would sit there saying, I I don't do that. Our hearts are naturally equipped with razor blades. And as we look at the the Bible, we come across something, and I'm not going to cut it, don't worry. (laughs) We come across something and we say, ah, that's just, I don't get that. I just, let me cut through that. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree. And then we move on. 
and we highlight the things that we like and the other things that we leave. Why is that so dangerous to us and our kids? God made his word not to be very easily ascended to. He made it to be difficult for a reason. There, he, his mind is greater than our mind. His ways are higher than our ways. And if that's true, if he's infinite God and we're finite mind, there are going to be some things that natural men in sin nature are not going to like. And there's going to be concepts in the Bible that we don't quite understand. And we're meant to wrestle over them. That's how we get strong in our faith. That's how our kids get strong in their faith, by wrestling over it. Because this is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. Even Peter said, Paul's writing contains some things that are hard to understand. The whole point is that we are supposed to wrestle over this. We can't come to the Bible and we can't say, okay, the Bible means this because that squares with how I think. That's the Bible on our level or below us. The Bible is here. It can't teach, correct, rebuke, or train us in righteousness if it stands in a position under our authority. It has to have authority over us. And we're losing that. We're losing that in many evangelical churches, even today. I don't want to throw stones, but I want to tell you how important it is not to cut out portions of the Bible. Why? Because I want to belittle them? No, because I care about you. And I care about your children, and I know how profitable it's been for me to come to a verse and really struggle over it and place it before the Lord and pray, God, I don't understand this. I don't get it. Why did you do this? Why did you say that? Why did you command this? And the Lord has to help me see either that this is why and enlighten me and open my eyes to it or else he has to remind me that I'm a three-year-old trying to understand calculus. <laughs> that his mind is greater than mine and there comes a point where I have to trust him. Like the five-year-old who has to trust you that cookies are not a good idea for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's a wisdom that comes from wrestling with the word. He tells Timothy, it's able to make you wise for salvation unto Christ Jesus. And if we want to continue in our faith and we want to see our children continue in, our faith, in their faith, we have to help them as they wrestle through Scripture. We have to be willing to wrestle with the things of the Word of God in its entirety, not in part. Even the parts that make us uncomfortable. So our hearts must be transformed by the Spirit within us. And our lives must be conformed to the word set above us. But thirdly, and here's where I want to camp out for a little while. Our faith must be formed by those placed over or ahead of us. You heard a lot of that in the video. Faith and growth in Jesus comes through the work of the Holy Spirit with a word of God in our hearts. Those things are foundational. Those helped prepare Timothy, lead his church through the persecution of Nero, probably the darkest time 
in Christendom since the cross. The word and spirit were the how. But who are the who? Who prepared him? Before we answer the who, let us answer the why. If you've ever been to London, and I've never been to London, <laughs> I've been told this anecdotally, full transparency, you're not supposed to lie in church, right? There are signs that say, mind the gaps, or mind the gap. And that's because the old platforms and the new trains don't necessarily square up. And there's a danger that's inherent in the gap that is between the platform and the train or the train and the platform. So the mind the gap, mind the gap, is repeated over and over again as a warning because there's great danger in the gap that you're about to transverse. When we think about minding the gaps, there are gaps that our families and our kids will encounter here in the church. And here is illustrated for you those gaps. For every age transition, there is a potential gap for a kid. They're lesser early on, but as they get further on in their faith development, it hits them harder. So the, the first gap that doesn't look as significant, but it's extremely significant, is the gap between fifth and sixth grade and middle school. Why do I say that? Because brain development-wise, cognitively, faith-wise, what's happening inside of a child is they're moving from the concrete world and they're beginning to gain concepts and get concepts. And they're transitioning between the, the conceptual to the theoretical. And what's happening inside them is they begin to answer, ask the why questions. Not the why questions they were when they were like five and why, why, why. That's a different why season. This season is more insidious because it's internal. And when the why goes silent, that becomes a problem because all these things they learned growing up in school, in Sunday school, they begin to question but they don't necessarily verbalize it. It goes inside, and they're asking all these questions. And unless we reach in and help them answer those questions, somebody's going to answer them for them. It's either going to be their intellect at that age, or it's going to be their peers, or it's going to be some well-meaning adult. I say well-meaning tongue-in-cheek, not well-meaning adult. <laughs> who steers them in the direction of their own worldview. And so we have middle schoolers here or in churches that have these silent why questions. They go through that whole time questioning and wrestling. And if those questions don't get answered by the time they turn 16 and they can drive, they're gone. Unless mom and dad bring them here and then they wait till college and then they don't come back. The next season, that's why that gray area is there. The next season you catch them is typically has been for generations when they start having children and they come back to church because they, they sense a responsibility there. But what happens is that in this day and age, having children is being delayed even more and more. So you're talking about maybe a 10 to 15 year gap of being under the preached word of God in the community of faith. It's becoming less and less likely for those who've left to come back. But what about this? 
What if we became, what if we became the kind of church that minimized the gaps? How do we do that? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to equip parents because they're the first ones to answer that question, who? Who prepared? In the life of Timothy, it was his grandmother and his mother. They're the ones who helped prepare Timothy first. Every second Sunday, Dr. Yusuf baptizes a child. Now, for all of you Baptists out there, work with me here. (laughs) What we're saying there is not that that child is saved. What we're saying is we're setting apart that child in that family for a holy purpose because we believe the sovereign God placed that child in that family for the purpose of being raised in a family where the Holy Spirit is active through either one or two of those parents, where they're going to hear the scripture taught. They're going to be brought to a community of faith, to a church where people are going to live out their faith as well. This is what Paul is alluding to when he says, from infancy you've known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Earlier in 2 Timothy 1.5, again, Paul refers to his grandmother Lois and his his mother Eunice, and he says that Timothy has a sincere faith that which first dwelt in both of them. That word, as I said, is unhypocritical faith. They lived a real faith in front of Timothy. They didn't just speak truth. They lived truth. Four years ago, when I shared with you the last time I, I told you an illustration of when my son was, a, uh, was little and he learned my uh, way of speaking to traffic, And I'm not praying over traffic at that point. He, used to, he would say, Mon dude, Mon dude, which is, come on, dude, come on, dude. I ask you a question. When do our children first learn to drive? If you said 15 or 16, you were absolutely wrong. They learn the moment you start strapping them into a car seat because they're watching you. God help him, my son drives like me, and I didn't teach him how to drive. Why? Because he watched me drive. Thankfully, his mom's skill and technique have helped him overcome my many deficiencies. But he drives like me because he's ridden with me so long. Our our kids are passive learners in church for most of their lives. Dr. Yusuf has said before, your children will learn to trust the Lord by watching you, watching how you trust the Lord. And that's exactly it. They aren't watching to see if we're perfect, and they're not watching to see if we're supremely wise because the gospel is not about us being perfect, and the gospel is not about us being extremely wise, but it, our life shows repentance and seeking wisdom from the Word of God. They see that. That's faith. That's trust that they learn. They see us order our days, our lives, by a worldview that's consistent with the Lord is sovereign over my whole life. Not just this part, not just this part, but the whole thing. We belong to him. If they see a life 
in their parents that shows that it's real what they believe, that it's not just something that they do at church and they do something different at home. There's a higher chance that that faith is going to stick. Now, it's not just mom and dad that he mentions here. It's grandmother, his grandmother Lois. And I want to say a word to all of you grandparents out there. You still have an active role in the faith formation of your grandchildren. I know my grandmother was praying for me. She used to try to get me to come to vacation Bible school. I'm like, no. I, had, I wanted nothing to do with that. So I know she was praying. And she was rejoiced when I came to know the Lord and was baptized. And I know she rejoiced when I said that I was going to be a preacher. And then she mourned all day when she realized I was going to be a Presbyterian. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> but she got okay with that eventually. But she was praying for me. And if we really want hearts to be changed, be praying for your grandchildren. Don't stop inviting them to VBS. Don't stop speaking words of faith over them. Don't stop reading scripture to them. Don't stop bringing them to church when they stay with you. Don't stop. Pay special attention to things like the grandparenting seminar that helps equip and train you for that role. You're not done. You are part of that dynamic, just as Timothy's grandmother was in training him. So the home is where faith is nurtured first, but the church is meant to come alongside and help families, equip them, and also minister to those children. Timothy wasn't just influenced by his mother and grandmother. If you look at the, the beginning of the passage in verse 10 and following, Paul says this, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued uh, me from all of them. Timothy has heard Paul's teaching, but he's seen this man who claims to know Christ and, and follow after him suffer for the name of that Lord that he's claimed. This persecutor who's gone from being a, being a persecutor to a proponent of the faith is putting his money where his mouth and, and he is, and he's, he's suffering for the faith. And Timothy has watched his example, and that's going to be invaluable when the persecution of Nero breaks out. He is going to have seen what it's like for his mentor and spiritual father, and that's what he, he is because he calls Timothy, his beloved son, he's going to see what it's like for his spiritual father to endure those things and how a Christian man endures suffering by faith. And that's invaluable. We have attempted to put those kind of people in those points of transition here on our end here at the church. We want to put those who are going to be not only teachers of the word, but livers of that word, those who live the word. We want people who are going to have spiritual friendships or, or relationships with those who are just 
coming up in the faith. But we can't just have professionals. That's not what the church is all about. We have those moments of equipping. We have these new Wednesday nights that are going to be times of equipping families. We have the Sunday school hour. We have uh, the hub. We have mom to mom. We have women's ministries. We have all kinds of wonderful things that we'll pour back into those of you who come. But that can't just be all of it. The way that God has designed the church It's to have those who are just ahead of you pour into those who are coming after you. And some of you heard that and said, yes, 50 and 60-year-olds, get with the program. I'm sorry, but if you're in your 20s, if you're in your 30s, if you're in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, you have something to offer someone coming up behind you. You've experienced life that they haven't experienced yet. You've experienced life and faith that they have not yet encountered. And this isn't just for people who are, who are older than you chronologically, but those who've gone through things that are difficult, who can speak to you when you go through difficult things. The church is meant to be that place. We are meant to be the place where all of those people come together And each one is pouring into the one coming up. Even teenagers, many of them serve up in children's ministry. They're pouring back in. What people need to see more than anything is a way of life that you live as followers of Christ. Busy mom, invite that young adult over who will help you during the day with the kids, with what you have to do, because they're learning something from that. They crave that. They love that. You're getting something out of the deal too, right? But you're also pouring into the next generation. It doesn't take a program. We've got plenty of programs here, plenty of opportunities. All it takes is this. I like to go to coffee with you. That's all it takes. Can we get lunch? That's all it takes. It doesn't have to be formal. It begins with sharing your stories with one another. That's how that faith transformation begins. I look out at all of you, and I see something incredible. I see something that a lot of churches don't have these days. Older saints and younger saints. And some of you, are in that discipleship, mentoring relationship with someone who's older than you. But not everybody is. I want you to imagine how transformational it could be for our church if the older and the younger began to be in discipleship relationships and mentoring relationships with each other. How much of an impact that could be for the kingdom? How much a young father can learn from a father who's older than him. A mother learn from those who are older than her. And how transformational that could be to their kids. Let's start here. Let's try to close those gaps. 
Let's be a catalyst for something bigger that won't just impact the spiritual faith of those in this room, in this church, but will overflow into our community. When I was a seventh grade, when I was a seventh grader, I had a science teacher. I loved him. He was a wrestling coach also, and so he really liked to get us all pumped up in class. Um, the man loved explosions. I mean, he just loved them. And he especially loved the reaction of sodium and water. Like, that was his thing. And uh, so he would, he would get little pieces of sodium out to show us what the reaction between sodium and water was. And we would cheer him on. We, when we had a free moment, we were like, okay, let's, let's see the reaction again. He would get out little pieces of sodium and throw them in the water, and the water would just shoot up. One day, as we were just cheering him on, he took a piece of sodium, I, I kid you not, that was about a, as big as a ping pong ball, and he had this beaker of water sitting there on the table, and we were just so excited to see what was about to happen. And we were just cheering him on, and, and, and you know, he, was, he was very purposeful about taking it out of the kerosene and letting us see it. Of course, you don't want to hold it too long in the air because you'll get another reaction. So he takes it over to the water, and we're all just waiting there with anticipation as he drops that in, and just a geyser erupts from the beaker that almost hits the ceiling. And all of us, seventh, it was a class full of boys, so we're all just cheering at the top of our lungs as we see this, this reaction, this explosion, because what seventh grader doesn't like a good explosion? But when I see you all out there, and I know so many of you, what you have in you and the potential and the faith that you have and what you've, and the roads you've walked, the pain you've endured. And I know others of you who need someone like that in their life. It's like you're that sodium in kerosene just waiting for a reaction. And so when I look at you, I think, I still love explosions. <laughs> I still love to see what would happen if the older and the younger truly began to walk with each other in discipleship and mentoring relationships. What could happen here could truly be transformational to our community. Our church's community and the community that's outside these doors. So I have one question for you as I close. Do you want to be a part of that? If so, I ask you to pray and I ask you to seek. How would God have you in, as a mom, as a dad, as a spiritual mentor, be involved in the life of those in this church and build something bigger with eternal impact. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing the fact that we need your word, we need your spirit, and we need you to move us. Lord, help us lay comfort on the altar. What's facing the next generation? is so much bigger than our individual lives. 
but you have chosen us in our individual lives through the power of your spirit and the power of your word to equip a generation that's coming up so that by your power we could see transformation of hearts and lives and ultimately the communities around us. God, give us that power and zeal through your spirit. Don't just give us willing bodies, but give us willing hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.